Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Anti-Genocide Coffee Break, a multinational podcast. I am your host, Elisa von Jürgen Forgi, and I'm here with my co-host, Irene Victoria Massimino. Our technical producer is Rafi Zarzatian. You can find us at theirockproject.org and on Patreon, Spotify, and iTunes. We are so happy and honored to have with us today Dr. Anahit Kosroeva, an Assyrian-American historian and human rights advocate. She's here to discuss with us Biden's recent, U.S. President Biden's recent recognition of the Armenian genocide on April 24th of this year, as well as the war in Artsakh and the history and present-day realities of Assyrians around the world. Welcome, Dr. Kosroeva. Welcome. Hello. Thank you so much, ladies, for having me. It's an honor to be here. Well, well Ruth, it's an honor that you are here, and thank you for taking time out of your very, very busy schedule. We know this is a busy time in, Ar in Armenia with the um, annual commemoration of the genocide on April 24th, and then all of the events going on um, in Armenia now because of Biden's recognition. So we hope you will tell us what you've been doing. <laughs> Of course, but it's my pleasure and thank you for uh, speaking about this issue because as you said, Alisa, it's very important and we will discuss during the program. Thank you so much again for having me. Oh, we're so excited. Thank you. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to start as we do with news. Um, so Irena, I'm going to hand it over to you. Thank you, Anahit, for being here. I, I love to say that we've met Anahit long ago, actually, mm -hmm. and we're friends, we're colleagues, and and uh, in many events that we're on genocide and genocide prevention, we met Anahit. So it's my pleasure to have you here, and hopefully one day we can record a podcast from Armenia, the three of us directly. So well, that's great. for that day. <laughs> yes, certainly. Okay, so my news of the day, I'll start with the good ones. Um, it's on the BBC, the BBC, uh, the BBC News online newspapers. We'll, as usually, we'll, we'll upload them on our website, uh, IraqProject.org. And it's about the Uyghurs uh, genocide. The MPs on 22 April stated genocide is taking place in China. Actually, it's a follow-up on the news we presented previously on our podcast when MPs were approached by different activists in order to make this statement. So the House of Commons has declared for the first time that genocide is taking place um, against the Uyghurs and, other, and others in northwest China. More than a million people are estimated to have been detained at camps in the region of Jinyang. We've been hearing this on the news for quite a while now, and we've also mentioned a document uh, written by experts on genocide um, stating actually that uh, the actions taking place in China are, uh, uh, are within the context of the Genocide Convention. So the motion approved by the MPs does not compel the UK to take any action. This is also important to clarify, but it's a sign of growing discontent towards the uh, Chinese government in the parliament. Uh, in response, of course, China said that the UK should immediately right its wrong moves. And um, it's, this is a historic moment, as it was highlighted by Tori Sir Yandun Smith, 
and because it brings the UK Parliament in line with Holland, Canada and also the United States. And I'd like to just highlight what MP News Ghani said, that all five criteria of genocide are evidence is taking place in Yinyang. So this is this is important news and it brings us to the importance of recognition of the recognition of a genocide, something that we will be talking about during this podcast with Anna Heat. And that also brings me to the second piece of news uh, featuring Al Jazeera, actually, survivors of the Anfal Kurdish genocide long foreclosure. Uh, 33 years after the mass killing uh, of Kurds in northern Iraq by Saddam Hussein troops, families still struggle to identify and bury the victims. Um, this violence, which took the life of about 100,000 Kurds, mostly civilians, and destroyed um, uh, 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 hundreds of villages. Uh, it's important also to remember the use of, of chemical weapons, actually. Um, has not been fully clarified yet. Uh, Kurdish officials said that the whereabouts of thousands who went missing is still very unclear, and the families have been trying to identify bodies in mass graves. Uh, in July 2019, actually, four mass graves with dozens of bodies, uh, believed to be Kurds killed by Saddam, was found in Samawa, uh, in the Samawa desert uh, of Al-Atmudhana province in southern Iraq. But yet people have raised a lot of concerns about the excavation process, about how good it was the excavation process, and also of the actions taken by the KRG to identify the bodies. Many, uh, many uh, 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 relatives of survivors uh, featured in this particular news explain that the KRG has failed the survivors of Anfal campaign and uh, it politicized the causes for political gains. So this is something that also uh, is related, of course, to the recognition of a genocide. We, we know that it has not been largely recognized and that prevents a lot of these actions, such as the recognition of the bodies and, and the return of the bodies to the families. And another news also that brings us to Iraq, to northern Iraq and, and the, the, uh, the country of Turkey that has been um, on the news lately, not for the good reasons either, is also featuring Al Jazeera, is Turkish forces attack PKK targets in northern Iraq. Uh, Defense Ministry says Turkey has been carrying out a new air and land operation against Kurdish fighters in the region, breaching, of course, then uh, the independence, of course, and the territory, the right to, to uh, uh, the, uh, not to breach uh, the territory of a state. And, of course, Turkey's army hit the Kurdish fighters and has stated that they are terrorists. And Erdogan expressively said that the offensive was designed to completely end the presence of the terror threat along our southern borders. Mm. There is no room for the separatist terrorist group in the future of Turkey, Iraq or Syria. Interesting that Erdogan is also speaking about two countries that are not part of his territory. <laughs> so Iraq and Syria in this particular case. But also I'm sure we'll speak a little bit about Turkey's involvement with Azerbaijan in the recent war of 2020 with mm -hmm. uh, in the territory, in the contested territory of Nagorno-Karabakh with Armenia. So he then said, we will keep on fighting until we eradicate these gangs of murderers who cause nothing but tears and destruction. Mm. It's very interesting because we've spoken with Elise about this and it looks like he's absolutely projecting what he actually is in others. Um, yeah. So um, 
these are the news for today. Um, I hope that uh, Elisa will bring us some other news. Uh, these are all important, and they all have to do a little bit with the recognition of, of genocide, mm -hmm. with with the recognition, with the uh, acknowledging that an, a genocide occurred, actually. So, um, anyway, we can discuss a little bit about them later. Thank you so much, Irena. Those are really important stories, and they they follow up on, on stories we've been watching, right? So they're, they're mm -hmm. very important updates on things we've been watching. On that note, um, there's new news out of the Tigray region in northern Ethiopia. Our listeners may know or remember from previous podcasts that there's been um, a great deal of fighting and warfare in northern Ethiopia that has taken on an ethnic um, color to it. Uh, and has resulted in, in claims of ethnic cleansing and genocide on the part of both Amhara and Tigrayan people. It's an incredibly complex situation, and Irena and I are working very, very hard on um, finding an expert to come on our podcast to clarify it for us. But today, um, there was a headline from The Economist, Tigray is edging closer to famine. So in addition to all of this fighting, we now have the threat of famine, which so often happens in these protracted um, uh, low-level wars because people, of course, can't feed their families and the economy collapses. But there seems to actually be uh, a strategy in this famine as well. Uh, so the sub-headline is evidence is growing that starvation is being used as a weapon of war in Ethiopia. And I'm going to read the first two paragraphs. The rest is, of course, up on our, will be up on our website. Um, People fleeing war are often driven by a fear of bullets and shells, but in Ethiopia's northern Tigray region, where fighting broke out in November between government forces and the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, a former ruling party that reverted to being a guerrilla movement, Guns are not the only weapons of war. The United Nations has received reports of rape by soldiers. Millions face the threat of starvation, owing in part to the actions of the Ethiopian government's forces and its allies. Um, the suffering is widespread. Central and eastern Tigray, as well as parts of the northwest, are facing crisis or emergency hunger levels, according to the UN's Integrated Food Security Phase Classification, the IPC, meaning that households are suffering from acute malnutrition already. The next and final phase on the IPC scale is actual famine, marked by an extreme lack of food, resulting in starvation or death. Before the com conflict broke out, Tigray was largely free from hunger. Now the UN estimates that 4.5 million people need food aid. So, you know, that's, uh, that's striking to me that in only eight months or so, um, this region has gone from being free, almost free from hunger to now needing food aid and being one step below actual all-out famine. So, so clearly the, the world needs to, um, needs to focus on Ethiopia and on solving this conflict and, and on, on bringing the Ethiopian state <laughs> to, to its senses, at least in, you know, involving northern Ethiopia and, and the fate of civilians there. Um, my second article is um, an update, and I'm sure we'll be talking about that 
today as well, an update on prisoners of war that are Armenian prisoners of war who are still being held in Azerbaijan by by Azerbaijan and have not been returned to Armenia in contravention of the Geneva Conventions. Um, This is a Vice World News report entitled, They Chained Me to a Radiator and Beat Me, Armenian POWs Speak Out. So this is one of the first, um, the first sort of uh, reports in English that I have seen in the news that, that really tries to detail personal stories of Armenian POWs. As we've talked about a lot in this podcast, this is a conflict that has not been well covered in the international press, but needs to be well covered because of the evidence of sort of genocidal mentality on the part of the Azerbaijani authorities and their military. Um, So the subtitle here is Armenian fighters tell vice world news stories of brutal abuse at the hands of soldiers from Azerbaijan following the conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh. And they have um, they have a a young man uh, whose, whose name is Armen, who spoke with them. Um, and tells them the following story. It was late at night, and Armin, a 20-year-old soldier in the Armenian military, was sleeping in an abandoned hut when he was startled awake by a sudden burst of gunfire. He ran outside to locate the source of the shooting, leaving seven comrades inside the hut, and immediately came under fire from soldiers from Azerbaijan, Armenia's neighbor and rival in the ongoing dispute over who should lay claim to Nagorno-Karabakh a tiny territory in the Caucasus region that has long been a point of contention. The Azerbaijanis began shooting at us, but we couldn't see them, said Armin, who, along with every Armenian soldier Vice World News spoke to, did so on condition of anonymity due to security concerns. So even though these guys are free, they're still very afraid of, um, of Azerbaijan. Once we had all been injured, they shouted at us in Russian that we should surrender. They said that they would take us to the Red Cross. The Armenians surrendered, but according to Armin, the Azerbaijani soldiers began to beat them as soon as they were in custody. The soldiers kicked Armin in the head and poked him with a metal cooking skewer, he said. They bound his hands so tightly that he now has scars across his wrists. After the Armenians were transferred to a military police station in Baku, Azerbaijan's capital, the beatings continued, Armin said. He said he remembered being kicked and punched in the head and hit with pieces of wood. He had wounds on his head, his eyes were swollen shut, and the Azerbaijanis threatened to kill him. The military police did not interrogate us. They only beat us. On the first day, they chained my hands to the heating system, and I remained in that position, seated on the floor throughout the whole night, Armin said. I was not able to sleep because of the pain. My face, my eye, and my knee ached. They had hit my knee a lot, and it was swollen. Um, So he was held for several several months before being released, um, but his story uh, reflects the stories of other Armenians who were in Azerbaijani detention, which shows torture, mistreatment, as well as, you know, um, an, an, an absolute lack of security need to, to keep these POWs. The Azerbaijani state is arguing that these guys are not, some of the, the soldiers they still have and, and, and civilians they still have in captivity 
um, are not POWs, that they're terrorists, right? Um, which we had a we had a guest on our show, uh, Dr. Gergen Petrosian, who 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 called them hostages, really, because because they were taken sort of outside of the the conflict. Um, but our, but Azerbaijan is arguing it should be able to hold these folks because they're not POWs. They're they're terrorists. But you know, Armin's story here shows that he was never even interrogated. He was just kept around to abuse, um, which which is further evidence of of a growing and very very concerning mentality on the part of the Azerbaijani state towards Armenians. Um, and then last, related to that. Um, story is a very interesting um, analysis in Haaretz, the Israeli newspaper, uh, with the headline, Why Won't Israel Recognize the Armenian Genocide? Um, it's by Eldad ben Aaron, um, and, and he notes that it's not just about Turkey. He writes that there's been growing attention given to Israel's policy on the Armenian genocide over the last two decades. Scholars, practitioners, journalists, activists, and the general public are trying to map the different reasons and grievances framing Israel's firm position, which is not to recognize the Armenian genocide. Um, and we all know um, scholars who've been trying to to push Israel to recognize the Armenian genocide, right? But there, there does, there is this firm position not to do it. Conventional wisdom, Ben Aron writes, points to dictums such as Israeli relations with Turkey are too important, or that Israel prefers Azerbaijan to the Armenians. And while those, you know, are important points, he notes that they are too sweeping, is the term that he used, to explain a more complex phenomenon about why Israel won't recognize the genocide. And that is that, um, that, uh, that the memory of the Holocaust as a unique event, he argues, is really what's fueling Israel's resistance to recognizing the Armenian genocide. He writes that in Israel, there is a commitment to never again, a watchword in Israeli society, politics, and diplomacy ever since the birth of the state of Israel. But it has been embraced in its particularist form, never again to Jewish vulnerability in the face of murderous anti-Semitism, rather than the never again to anyone, the form in which it is widely understood in, for example, the liberal American Jewish community. And then he continues, that same particularism works retroactively, too. Analogies to the Holocaust are often slammed as the trivialization of Jewish suffering. That anathema to sharing the idea of being genocide victims or the fear of competing genocide commemorations has a specific locus. Um, the date of Israel's Holocaust Remembrance Day is observed according to the Hebrew calendar, but it generally falls in the second half of April or in early May. If the Knesset recognized the Armenian genocide, its April 24 Memorial Day would fall in close proximity, actualizing the threat of competition over genocide commemorations. And so he then he writes that despite these significant considerations weighing against recognition, there is still a chance to change Israel's calculus. The tipping point is less likely to depend on a deterioration of relations with Turkey or pressure from Azerbaijan, but rather on a strengthening of Israel's own fractured democratic 
processes. And I think that's a very important point that he's making, that, um, you know, that democratic processes are enriched by and strengthened by telling the truth and by genocide, by recognizing harms done to, to peoples all over the world, whether they are the majority in your own country or not, you know, and, and um, we could talk a little bit more about the importance of recognitions and Israel's unwillingness, as he puts it, to share the term genocide, right, with, with, with other peoples. Um, you know, and in, in Armenia, it's the reverse. Uh, the Armenians... Um, in my experience, including at the state level, have been have been very sort of generous is the word and, and universal in their use of the term genocide, very willing to um, explore their own genocide from 1915 um, in, in comparison with people around the world who have suffered similar similar processes, right, that we call genocide. Um, so, I, I mean, hopefully, hopefully there's a chance to to tip Israel's or to change Israel's calculus, as this as this article suggests, because this continuing reluctance to um, compare the Shoah or the Holocaust to other genocides um, has has kind of held the term genocide hostage. It seems to me, to the point that that it that it sharply um, d- um, distorts what the process really is. There certainly were unique elements to the Holocaust and there are unique elements to all genocides. Um, But the Holocaust was so kind of, well, I mean, this is another discussion we can have, but I I think there's an argument that can be made that it was a particularly sort of centralized intent, long-term form of genocide. Although I recently in a, in a talk argued that it's very similar to the Armenian genocide, that the Armenian genocide is actually ongoing. But there are ways in which we can look at the the Holocaust as a particular sort of genocide without necessarily um, leaving out, right, other genocides as well. So so I want to end on that because that leads leads into um, our interview with Anahit. So, Dr. Kosroeva, um, as I noted, you are an Assyrian-American historian and human rights advocate, as well as a leading researcher at the Department of Armenian Genocide Studies in the Institute of History at the Armenian National Academy of Sciences in Yerevan, as well as the Scholar-in-Residence at North Park University in Chicago, USA, where you teach the courses on genocide studies. So this is amazing. You split your time between between Armenia and the United States. So that's a very busy schedule in and of itself. Um, Dr. Kosroeva is the author of many research books and monographs, as well as numerous articles on the history of the genocide of Armenians, Assyrians, and Greeks during the Ottoman period from 1894 to 1923. Her research interests include comparative genocide studies and human rights. Uh, Dr. Kosroeva is an active member of the International Association of Genocide Scholars and the International Network of Genocide Scholars. She has presented at various worldwide academic and political conferences. On March 24, 2015, with the continuous efforts um, of 
Dr. Kosreva, a month before the commemoration of the centennial of the Armenian Genocide, uh, the National Assembly of the Republic of Armenia unanimously passed a resolution recognizing the Greek and Assyrian genocides committed by the Ottoman Empire during 1915 to 1923. For her outstanding services, Dr. Kosreva has received numerous awards and state medals, including presidential medals. Today, she continues to be an active voice in bringing further awareness, recognition, and justice for the Assyrians and Armenians using international human rights laws. So thank you so much, Dr. Kosreva, for taking time out from your busy schedule to record with us. Um, we are just so excited to have you here. And I want to start by asking you about President Biden's recent recognition of the Armenian genocide on April 24th. Um, you know, he's the first president to recognize the genocide since President Reagan. But my understanding is that Reagan's recognition was not as forceful or as binding. So I'm wondering if you have thoughts on that. Uh, Elisa, again, thank you so much for having me for your program. It's really a pleasure to be here. And thank you so much for your beautiful introduction. And regarding the question, yes, U.S. President Joe Biden has ended decades of U.S. Uh, appeasement of Turkey by recognizing the genocide carried out 106 years ago against Armenians by a previous Turkish government, meaning young Turks during the First World War, as you know. And as you said, the closest the U.S. president had come to this kind of statement was Ronald Reagan, who referred to the genocide of the Armenians in passing in a 1981 statement on the Jewish Holocaust, but that was not followed up by the formal recognition. The reason for that, I believe, it was Soviet Union era in Armenia, and it was different times, mm. and claimants were not influential, influential like now, so the G word didn't become official for Ronald Reagan's policy, mm. and also for the future U.S. president's administrations, and particularly for U.S. policy toward this issue. I believe this is my thoughts regarding this, what I can tell. Yeah, no, thank you. That's very clarifying. Thank you. Yeah, and also I would like to mention here a very important thing that till now, as you know, the majority of the United States states on a state level, they recognized the Armenian genocide. It's very important foundation and base for the President Joe Biden. And also in 2019, in October, the House of Representatives also passed the resolution condemning uh, the Ge Armenian genocide. And in 2019, in December, Senate passed a resolution, again, the same resolution, yeah. condemning and recognizing the Armenian genocide. So all this can have a huge foundation for President Biden. Mm -hmm. I mean, President Trump previously didn't do it, but President Biden was tough enough to do that. And also he promised during his campaign. Yeah. So we can speak about it later, yeah. but regarding the Reagan, so I think it's, this is the main thing, like, you know, he used the word, but he didn't become a policy of, to of policy the, of states. Yeah, uh, thank you. What 
I wanted to add that, if I'm not mistaken, what happened with Reagan's recognition was that later on it had to be approved by the Congress, by the two chambers of the Congress. I, and it was approved by the lower one, I think, but then later on was not approved by the second uh, chamber, the House of uh, the Senate, right? Is the House, mm -hmm, the the House Senate, of Representatives yeah. and then the Senate. So the Senate didn't pass it. And therefore, it stated, it became just like a statement that he made without becoming an actual law, according to the, the ways of, of the U.S. approving and passing resolutions. And this, and Biden did it in a way that it would not need the approval of the chambers. So I think his statement now is a statement that will last and that will cannot be overturned in the future. And probably for the reasons you stated, Anna Heat, that, you know, the, the context, the historical context of it. Yeah, mm -hmm. certainly. That's great. Yeah. And so and, I, you know, I, I read recently that, that Biden had also promised to recognize the Armenian genocide during the Obama administration, he said, if he were ever to become president. So this is a long term promise that mm -hmm. he had made to the Armenian people. I actually didn't realize that until after his recognition. So that's, that's I'm really lovely. He keeps, me too. <laughs> he glad. kept his promise. Politicians usually give all these promises and then they don't follow up on them. But right. Once they're important. elected. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's really it's lovely that he did it. And as we were talking, Anahid, I would love for you to say it in the podcast, how important this was for, for the Armenian people, right? Especially yeah. after the context of the war. Yeah. Well, let me jump in with the second question, because that's along those lines. Um, but I want to jump in with it. We had written that, that you worked on legislation recently passed or in 2015 passed by the Armenian parliament, recognizing the As Assyrian and Greek genocides, right, un under Ottoman rule. And so we, you know, we want to ask you, why are genocide recognitions so important? So you've been fighting for recognition of various genocides for a while. And then, you know, why are they important? And then what are the consequences um, of, of these recognitions? And particularly, what do you think the consequences of Biden's recognition will be? Thank you so much for question. Before uh, answering you, Alisa, I'm just going to answer a couple words to Irene. Yes, mm -hmm. the recognition of uh, uh, Armenian genocide and using the word during genocide word during his statement by Joe Biden, it was very important for Armenian people, not only worldwide, but particularly in Armenia. Right now, as you know, I am in Armenia and I can see how people there are excited, especially as you said, Irene, after the war. People are broken you know we, ha we had too many casualties we have right now prisoners of a war and Elisa mentioned during her uh, speech uh, so and you know like for us uh, I think it's kind of a good news in the darkness mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. hopefully I mean during our conversation I hope we are going to speak about like what we are expecting after mm -hmm. But yeah, right yeah. now people are very excited, people are very happy, and they appreciate that the President Biden used the word genocide, and they are really thankful. And I'm going to have just a small um, uh, statement regarding that. Uh, actually, uh, the day when he recognized the Armenian genocide on April 24, it was a uh, baby born in one of the region in Armenia, mm -hmm. and they called him Joe Biden. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> they were thinking, first of all, the 
knows it was an art comedy. We were thinking it's just a joke. And then <laughs> next they find out, no, it's a real. They call him Joe Biden. <laughs> So, so this is one of our appreciations Armenian for the United States president. And regarding the second question of Elisa, uh, yes, Armenia formally recognized um, the Greek and Assyrian genocide during the First World War mass era, so calling the mass killings of uh, Assyrians and Greeks who were subjected to atrocities with Armenians as a genocide. And this resolution was anonymously, as you said, passed by our parliament, Armenian parliament, on March 24, 2015, a month before the 100th commemoration of the Armenian genocide. The National Assembly of Armenia declared that it condemns the genocide of Greeks and Assyrians perpetrated in the Ottoman Empire from 1915 to 1923. And this document says that it widely documented massacres regarding the Assyrians and Greeks confirmed to the definition of genocide set mm. by a 1948 United Nations Convention. And it also cites centuries-old friendly friendly and brotherly relations between the Armenians, Greeks, and Assyrians. Mm. So this is that. And regarding the second question which you asked, why it is important Mm -hmm. to recognize the genocide? You know, as genocide scholars, three of us, we can speak like very long about it. But I'm just (laughs) going to mention here, emphasize here just three factors, which I think the most important for me. First of all, it's to respect the victims, Mm -hmm. to accept their dignity and to give an end to their traumas. Second, I think it's very important important for the reconciliation in a society, for the human rights, and especially for the democracy. Mm. In a society, uh, I mean, if society cannot face its own history, it cannot establish a democratic future. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the third factor, I think, is related to the second one. We always uh, we always say as a slogan in genocide studies, never again. If we use that sentence never again, it can only be possible if society face its history. If a mm-hmm. society, if a state doesn't acknowledge its wrongdoing in the past, this means there is a potential there. It is always going to happen. That's why apparently we see always genocide, always persecution happening around the world right now. I think like if I say Mm. shortly, this is what I could say about it. And regarding Biden, again, back, why it is, Alisa asked why it is important uh, for us. Biden promised to recognize the Armenian genocide during the 2020 campaign and using a couple days ago in April 24, in his address, uh, he used the word genocide. It was a significant moral victory for Mm. the Armenian people and humanity. As the international recognition and condemnation of crimes against humanity are one of the pillars of human development. Mm. 
The Armenian-American community waged a decades-long struggle to reach that goal, which since the 1990s had been supported by the Armenian state after we, after we got independent. So Armenians won their first significant victory in 2019 when I saw when I said when the House of Representatives and the Senate recognized the Armenian genocide. The ultimate goal, however, was the use of the G word by the U.S. presidents. And as we know, several American presidents, also including Barack Obama, promised to do that but failed to fulfill promise for different reasons. Uh, but I'm just going to tell here one of during one of his address, uh, Barack Obama used the word medzierer like how it's it's actually equal to the genocide because Armenians, they are using Mez Yagarn uh, word for genocide. But again, it was not on a like um, administrative level and he just used the word Mez Yagarn. He didn't use the word genocide. Also, I want to just say a couple words here, if you allow me, about the Turkey. That mm -hmm. because why it is Turkey also, I mean, Turkey is very angry right now. Although Turkey recognizes that the lots of Armenians were killed by Ottoman forces in 1915, but it, it doesn't claim it as genocide. You know, it, there is a denial policy of Turkey which continues 106 years. Turkey made its displeasure clear on Saturday. And on the level of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Chavushoglu, it was, he wrote on Twitter, he tweeted saying like approximately like this, we entirely reject this statement. He says, we have nothing to learn from anybody on our own past. Political opportunism is the greatest betrayal to peace and justice. Hmm. This was his quote. The ministry issued a statement saying the United States had opened, I'm quoting him again, a deep wound that undermines our mutual trust and friendship. Hmm. So previously, um, they told pre President Biden, as you know, like uh, literally hours before uh, President Biden used the word genocide, it was an online conversation between President Erdogan and President Biden. And President Biden told President Erdogan that I'm going to use tomorrow the word genocide. Of course, uh, Turkish president didn't like it. And according the conversation, he told President Biden that he's going to normalize ties with Armenia. And if you use this moment and you will use the, use, use the word genocide, I am going to use this opportunity and open the borders between Armenia and Turkey. And 
he approximately he told like this if americans call the 1915 events as genocide in such circumstances this could sabotage the entire process in the caucasus Unfortunately, hmm. it always used to be like this, and it continues like right now. Like Armenian question, starting from 19th century, apparently till now, it became as a like a, a question for sabotage. Like if it means like if America needs us, it not needs us. If America wants to punish Turkey, they are using Armenian genocide issue. Hmm. The same Turkey. Hmm. Like whenever we wanna have a have a like a, let's say game with big powers, they are using the sabotage. Like they wanna open the borders. It's unfortunately, but with our government, which we have right now, we cannot do anything. Like you know, because after the Nagorno-Karabakh war at the end of the 2020, uh, after the capitulation, I'm not afraid to use this word. Sometimes people they tell me, you know, it's very painful. You shouldn't mm-hmm. use it, but I'm telling the truth. Yes, mm. it's painful, but it's true. Apparently, we have to go through all this pain so we can rebirth again. So yeah. hopefully, mm. I don't know, new elections are coming and we are going to have a new government. We are going to have a new leader of the country. And, you know, we can stand on our feet and we can continue be as a strong nation, at least like Right now, my main goal, which I want, I want a situation we used to be before September 27, 2020, yeah. before war. Yeah. So let's let's hope. And also, mm. I, I know, like I became, it became too long. <laughs> no, no, not at all. I'm just gonna speak just a couple of words. What we are expecting, as you said, Elisa, as mm-hmm. you asked, like after this after Joe Biden used the word genocide. So some expert and political circles in Armenia believe that the recognition of the Armenian genocide by US president provides an American so-called security umbrella to Armenia and Karabakh. According to this logic, it means after April 24, 2021, the U.S. will not allow any further hostile actions against Armenia or Karabakh by Azerbaijan or Turkey Mm. and will intervene military if necessary. However, this is very exaggerated. I mean, it's Mm. exaggerated. Mm. It is an exaggeration. The recognition of Armenian genocide doesn't mean that Armenia now is a U.S. treaty ally and any potential attack on Armenia will automatically trigger the U.S. military response. Armenia is a UN member state and any attack against Armenia may trigger a U.S. response as any aggression against any independent country. Mm-hmm. But this has nothing to do with recognition or non-recognition of our Armenian genocide. Yeah. The recognition of Armenian gen- genocide also doesn't mean that the U.S. will prevent Azerbaijani peacekeepers mm-hmm. from the territory. The U.S. doesn't recognize Nagorno-Karabakh independence, and unfortunately, we saw during 44 days war Mm-hmm. didn't do anything mm. to help us, yeah. which means that legally the U.S. perceives Nagorno-Karabakh as part of Azerbaijan. Therefore, the U.S. has no legal basis to send American troops 
to uh, to Karabakh to fight against the Azerbaijani army in case of new escalation. God forbid. Besides, yeah, I'm sorry. No, sorry, uh, Anahit, yeah. to interrupt you. Do you think this could change? I mean, this because I see Biden's recognition a little bit as a change in the geopolitics. You know, mm -hmm. it's like they are they're becoming afraid that Turkey is going to control the region eventually, and that. Turkey is becoming a, a, a powerful, very powerful nation. So do you think this this recognition maybe will influence the fact that the U.S. will in the future say, okay, maybe I'll take a... I think some of the U.S. states have recognized Nagorno-Karabakh as independent, ha yeah. had they? Some, yeah, some of them. Some, yeah. some of them. Yeah, so, you know, yeah, thank you so much for question. You know what? I think right now, in this very moment, everything mm -hmm. depends on how the government of Armenia is going to act. Okay. Because this is really very positive momentum to take this opportunity and let's say capitalize this uh, situation of like Joe Biden's statement. President Biden's recognition of Armenian genocide should be viewed as part of a new U.S. administration effort to prove that the protection of human rights has returned to the U.S. foreign policy mm. agenda. This step is also a message toward Turkey. Yeah. It can be a sign that Turkey is not as significant an ally for the U.S. as Ankara used to be. Turkey mm -hmm. is a complicated partner for the U.S., we know that. Yeah. It rejects the idea to be pure promoter of the U.S. interests and seeks to implement an independent foreign policy. We, we see what's going on. I mean, you previously you yeah. were speaking in Iraq, in Syria, in exactly. Libya. Mm -hmm. So U.S.-Turkey interests simultaneously clash and converge in many regions of the world. The growing Turkish appetite in Middle East and also in Eastern Mediterranean, and uh, it's like limited cooperation with Russia do not correspond with American interests. And also, let's don't forget, right now, Turkish-American relationship is very bad because we know that Turkey bought the Russian S-400 missile. Yes. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. also, I would like to uh, mention here that after the recognition of United States uh, President of the uh, Armenian Genocide, United States ambassadors in Ar ambassador in Armenia, Lynn Tracy, though describes Biden's message as historic, but has commented on the legal liabilities of President Joe Biden's recognition of the genocide, maintaining that the United Nations Genocide Convention is not applied retroactively. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. So it's very, very complicated. And as I said, like a couple of minutes ago, a lot of things right now depends on the Armenian government too, how they're going to act quickly and how we can capitalize all these things and work very uh, clever to use all these things on our benefit. When do you have elections, Anahit, in, in Armenia? When and what 
are these elections for? Who will you be choosing in the elections? Yeah, elections are coming. Uh, hopefully, it is going to be on uh, June 20th of okay. this year. Because a couple days, I mean, just uh, after the genocide commemoration day, day after, on April 25th, uh, the um, Prime Minister Pashinyan, he resigned. And now uh, there is a law by constitution, twice uh, parliament doesn't have to elect prime minister and new election is coming. And hopefully, hopefully, so he's not going to be elected and hopefully we are going to have a new prime minister and let's see how it is going to work for us. Mm. I'm wondering, thank you, Anahid. I'm wondering, you were in, so so this snap election um, has been called and the, and the current prime minister has resigned as a consequence of what you're calling the capitulation, right? In this tripartite agreement that mm-hmm. ended the last war um, in, in November of 2020. You were in Artsakh, right? Several yeah. times during yeah. the war. Yeah, I was there about six times. Amazing. Yeah, I was providing like humanitarian help. And actually, I was also in front line. It's very like painful experience, mm-hmm. which I went through. And not only me, but also whole nation. And um, this was something I cannot tell we were not expecting this. This was something we knew it's coming one day. Mm. But we didn't know it is going to be this kind of painful. Not only the casualties, not only 5,000 soldiers we lost during the war, but also loss of the territories, loss yes. of the attack. Yes, the it's agreement the, is terrible. And, you know, I can understand if we had the war and we lost it. But unfortunately, we were betrayed. We mm. were betrayed mm. by our own government by our own prime minister mm. and definitely he has to go first of all defeated defeated prime minister defeated defeated leaders they have to go mm. in the history we never mm. know i think the only defeated leader who stayed in power was saddam hussein but <laughs> again you cannot compare him with our prime minister so he has to go because we have to continue to live there are so many things to do for us we have to return those lands mm-hmm. and right now we are considering that those lands like 75 percent of Artsakh, which we gave to azerbaijan we call it like temporary mm. occupied lands by azerbaijan mm-hmm. we are going to win it back again because it's our historic land and no way we are going to give it just for nothing mm. yeah I, yeah this is so, so interesting what you're saying um and the, the it was so apparent i think around the world to people who know armenians or who are invested in uh, what's happening in the south caucasus that the that this war so this second artsakh war uh was just devastating for Armenians, even before this this signing of this tripartite ceasefire, um, you know, and and one of the things that is so shocking, and, and, and Irena and I have talked about it on this podcast, is um, is these horrible videos and photos that Azerbaijani soldiers were were putting up on Telegram and kind of, you know, really sharing all over social media as a form of 
terrorization of Armenian people the world over. Um, and alongside sort of gray wolves, increasing gray wolves terrorist activity, anti-Armenian terrorist activity around the world, I, I think the Armenian population globally felt that the genocide was was returning somehow, right? Absolutely. So Especially, as you know, Turkey was standing for Azerbaijan. Like, you know, they were using this slogan, two nations one, no, two countries, one nation, mm -hmm. you know, standing with Turkey, helping them with uh, military um, commanders, also helping with, with Bayraktar's um, weapons. I mean, they were using these weapons not only during the war for soldiers, also killing peaceful population of Nagorno-Karabakh. Yeah. So, and I can tell that this Nagorno-Karabakh war, the second one, the last one, it was kind of opportunity for Turkey to continue the old pan-Turkic yeah. ideologies which we used to have, the plans which they used to have to continue and, you know, with this new neo-Ottomanism, neo-Osmanism uh, ideology and to have their big Turkey. This is what mm -hmm. they wanted yeah. and it's opportunity for them. And as you spoke about grey wolves, let me tell, like right after the war in January, the, their party, they already established a school in Shushi and Shushi mm -hmm. was like a city, Armenian city, which yeah. we won first Karabakh war. So mm -hmm. in Shushi now they have a school where they're gonna educate uh, children of Azerbaijani, Azerbaijani children with their gray wolves education. Oh my so God. it's terrible. And it's not only the problem this what's happening in Nagorno-Karabakh, mm -hmm. it's not only the problem of Nagorno-Karabakh and problem of Armenians. This is al already a regional problem mm. and also should be problem for Russia and maybe for future world. Exactly. So, yes. You know, let me, I remember when uh, during the ISIS, when uh, they attacked uh, uh, Assyrian villages in Syria, Habur, I think it was mm -hmm. in 2016 and I was in Armenian TV on live and I was speaking about the situation and asking Armenian government as part of Assyria, my part of Assyrian, asking Armenian government not only condemn what's happening in Syria, also if it's possible to uh, let Assyrians who somehow can get to the borders of Turkey and come to Armenia to let them come in hmm. because that time they were letting uh, Armenians to come in because they could see in passports they are Armenians, they are Christians, so they were letting them in. So my uh, I was uh, my request was to Armenian government, please, if it's possible, let Assyrians to come in also because they were, there were no places they yeah. can go mm -hmm. in the Middle East. And I remember very clearly during my uh, uh, speech. I had this, when we were speaking about terrorist attacks, I said, you know what, the problem which right now Assyrians are facing in Middle East, in Syria, with ISIS problem, with these terrorists, it's not only our problem. Tomorrow, thereafter, exactly. they are exactly. going to be in front of our nose 
in here. You, we are not going to be yeah. able to see. Like we are not going to understand how it happened, how they appeared <laughs> here. Yeah. Unfortunately, like four years later, those terrorists, ex-terrorists, they were fighting in Azerbaijan from Azerbaijani side against Armenians. Unfortunately. <laughs> You know, sometimes I think whether there is a short-sighted mentality in politicians, because this is something, you, you know, what you just stated is very true. I mean, what the population that is at risk now could be us tomorrow. And this has been repeating for for decades, decades. And, and now that you, Elisa, brought the... the um, videos, you know, I want to bring something that we've talked about and, and you mentioned Anahit, this teaching that was also mentioned uh, to us by a good friend in Armenian Argentine in, in our previous podcast as well, this indoctrination of children in the hate of Armenians, etc. Yeah. And in the changes of history and this history changing uh, uh, to create a new history and to, and to sort of, uh, of uh, uh, this, um, how would you say, this, this in putting them into brainwashing, right? Brainwashing yeah. children to to have the wrong, of course, the wrong idea. I bring this the trophy park, which was, I think, oh one God. of the most appalling um, scenarios I've seen. Literally, it's. I remember um, talking with Elisa of the record, of course. I mean, outside the podcast and saying this is like a hundred percent Nazi behavior. I mean, this trophy park, and later on. The pictures of the children playing with this wax images of uh, distorted images of Armenians. Um, it's it's appalling. So I think and, and not only the region is at risk. I think mm -hmm. if the international community doesn't condemn this, anyone could be at risk of being in the future, becoming in the future victims of 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 this kind of atrocities. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I absolutely agree. You know, I wanted to mention, but you said already, the mm -hmm. park which they opened <laughs> in Azerbaijan and these children, like, you know, they're like six, seven years old yes. and they're playing with those. I mean, it's all, it's already scary when you are looking on the picture yeah. and you all that. Can you picture they go close? This is how Terrible. they them. This is how they raise them, and that's why we are not surprised all those atrocities which happened during the war. I mean, how they were killing, not only killing, killing during the war, I mean, it's okay. But you know, like all those brutalities, yeah. like cutting, stabbing, like, you know, all, mm -hmm. all those, I mean, it's, it's really terrible, really terrible. Along those lines, have you heard any... Um any reports of sexualized violence and rape during Artsakh? Actually, no, I didn't. Yeah, no idea. Yeah, I have. I've been looking for it. Usually, when you see that high level of brutality in a you war, would, that's mm -hmm. you would think, right? No, that, yeah. No, it couldn't be because look, I mean, this is the territories. The territories which they took, there were mm -hmm. no people living there. I okay. mean, right. so. That, why? Like it, mm. the, the places which they took those seven regions, we used to have only military bases. Okay. So, and the Shushi and some of the places like Hadrut, also the mm -hmm. like corridor, Karvachar, this happened the last year, uh, the last day after agreement. So that's why, thank God, 
so they didn't have those. That, so they didn't have but, access, right? They didn't yeah, have access yeah, to enough either. civilians yeah. to do yes. that. Thank goodness. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I have a question about that. And it leads into we wanted to ask you about. Um, so you're an expert on Assyrian history and genocide studies, right? Um, and so I would like to hear your thoughts about Assyrians in the Middle East. Are uh, Assyrians facing genocide alongside Yazidi and Armenians in, in Syria and Iraq? You just mentioned this, right? So we'd love to hear more of your thoughts on that and also on um, something that Irena and I have talked about along these lines. You know, in Iraq when we were there, and Irena, jump in, right? Um, in Iraq yes. when we were there, there when we arrived uh, first in 2016, our first time there, um, there was sort of a... a a popular understanding of, of genocide is only applying to what happened to the Yazidis because of the mm -hmm. high level of massacre of men, right? And because just the high numbers of women and children who were taken captive. Um, but, you know, what we learned about the pattern uh, when we were interviewing Christians, um, you know, all sorts of Christian communities, the four major Christian communities in Iraq, in, in IDP camps, in internally displaced camps, was that many of the Christians or most of the Christians fled once they heard what had happened to the Yazidis. So before ISIS reached some of these this is these historic Christian towns like Karakosh um, in the Nineveh plain, they had already attacked the Yazidis, and so the Christians were very worried that 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 they would have the same um, the same pardon me fate, and so they fled, and the only people remaining in those territories or in those towns were were the elderly. Um, who stayed with their homes. Mm -hmm. And then, so ISIS didn't have access to Christian bodies in the same way that it had access to Yazidi bodies. And the ones that, the, the bodies that ISIS did have access to, they tortured, they raped, they murdered, you know, they even stole, we, uh, they stole children um, mm -hmm. if they had access to them, right? So when there were children, ISIS took them. Um, so we realized that, you know, I mean, so our argument was that the um, Christians in Iraq were facing genocide, right, or were, were victims of genocide. It's just that that genocide looked different because so many people had fled, and therefore ISIS didn't have a chance to do to them what they had done to the Yazidis, who were overtaken totally unexpectedly, um, you know, in one night. Um, so, so I, so I don't, <laughs> I don't want to predict what you're going to say, but we would love your comments on that and sort of a wider view of, of you know, what Syrian Assyrians are facing in the world today. And Irena, you want to jump in? Yes, I, w I just wanted to add also that it's not only uh, the Christian, the impact of ISIS, in, you know, in the Christian community in Iraq is, is this long violence that the Christians have been suffering actually since since two, 2003. Yeah. So I think we'll, we have to look at that yeah, genocide, yeah. not as the Yazidi, that it was very impactful, right? It was one day, a couple of days actually, where the men were killed, the children were taken to, and, and, and forced to train for ISIS and the women were kidnapped and continue to be many of them, right? And raped, et cetera, subject to sexual violence. But the Christians have been suffering the persecution for many, many years and sort of um, 
like a uh, dropping water, you know, like slowly mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. have been, yes, slowly have mm -hmm. been um, uh, uh, been eliminated from actually the uh, the Middle East in general. Mm -hmm. In particular, mm -hmm. Iraq is is where we've been. But so uh, I think we have to. Maybe you can give us also an answer of the broader picture of Christians mm -hmm. for 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 almost decades now, a couple mm -hmm. of decades almost. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Yeah, you know, it's like very, very, I mean, I can speak about with like, with like very, very long, but mm -hmm. I'm gonna, I'm going to try to be very short, so don't take of much of your time. Assyrians, they're indigenous people of Iraq, mm -hmm. and so unfortunately, you know, when, when I'm speaking about Armenian genocide, at least till recent Karabakh war, I always used used to say that you know what. Sometimes they were asking me like, um, how come you are uh, you are demanding the recognition of uh, Armenian genocide, but less you are demanding the recognition of Assyrian genocide? I say no. It's not like I am less demanding the recognition of Assyrian genocide because right now mm. I, I always used to say right now it's an ongoing genocide of Assyrians. Like mm -hmm. it never finished. It was systematic repression of Assyrians starting like end of 19th century, beginning of 19th century, and continues till now. Armenians, for a change, and thank God, like before Karabakh war, I used to tell that, you know, yeah, we are demanding recognition because, you know, we have a now, we have a state, we have an independent state. It's totally different. It's mm. not the same. So, the systematic repressions of Assyrians, as you know, like I'm going to start from 19th century with Badr Khan Bey, like, you know, he start to kill them. And next at the end of the 19th century, 1894, 1896, Abdul Hamid's uh, massacres and yeah. slaughters, along with 300,000 Assyrians, 55,000 Assyrians, they were killed in uh, Western Armenia in mm. Ottoman Empire. Also, after that, so in 19, uh, from 1914 to 1923, uh, during the World War I and also the Kemalist Turkey, I see almost like more than a half a million Assyrians, mm. they were killed during this time. After that, so Assyrians, they moved to Iraq, the new established state of Iraq. Mm -hmm. And thinking like it's their own territory, they were thinking they are going to have also with the protection of the British, they were thinking they are going to have an autonomy. But no, in 1933, we had a huge massacre. We call mm -hmm. it Semeli massacre, which happened and thousands of thousands of Assyrians they were killed here in Bakuba camp and so in those territories of Iraq mm. after that we in 2003 with the invention of uh, uh, America in Iraq uh, the worst rest, I mean we can tell that the worst recent horrors resulted from the secretarian conflict triggered by the United States invasion yeah. and then the triumph of ISIS or in 2014. Daesh occupied Nineveh, Iraq, and they gave Christians in the area, as you know, ultimatum, either convert to Islam, mm -hmm. pay this, this um, Jazeera fee, like which they have to pay like fee 
as a Christians to Muslims or they're going to put them to death. So they didn't have anything left just to live. Mm -hmm. And hundreds of thousands of Iraqi Assyrians were forced to flee as a result of that Daesh uh, policy. Mm -hmm. uh, let me tell you this. Before 2003 invasion of Americans in Iraq, we used to have 1,800,000 Assyrians living in this area. Now we have less than a half a million. Mm. All of them first they flee to Middle Eastern countries like Turkey, Lebanon, Syria. And after that, if they have an opportunity, they are going like to United States or Australia. Mm -hmm. And also regarding the question of Iran, yes, you are right. Elsewhere, elsewhere, Assyrians also have suffered. For instance, as an in Iraq, Assyrians in Syria were brutally targeted as a result of a Christian component of their identity. They typically faced a similar choice between converting, being pe pe penalized for being non-Muslims or being killed. Yeah. In addition, Daesh diet kidnapped countless Christian religious leaders, many of them remaining missing today. The impact of these crimes remains having so-called left a deep scar in the Assyrian community till now. And we are facing all this today. Although ISIS has been defeated, Iraq has not returned to the status quo right now. We know it continues also today. And also, historically, Assyrians in Turkey have been oppressed, marginalized, and slaughtered. Also, in Iran, uh, I mean, Iran has proved, proved that it's inhospitable home for Christians, mm. Assyrians, despite formal acceptance of Christianity as a recognized minority. So persecution is real and it continues, unfortunately, if, if I make it short. Yeah, yes. thank no, you. In the, in the case of Iraq, I think I just want to add something that it's, you know, it's recognized as a minority and Iraq, you know, recognizes in the constitution the existence of minorities within the country. But it's interesting that it still has the Sharia law. So, you know, yes. if the, 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 the way to to rule is through Sharia. So in in a certain way that diminishes the right of other minorities that would not, of course, the Christian that's incompatible with them to mm -hmm. to to apply Sharia law to their different relationships. Uh, uh, so in a way, I think uh, in the core of, of Iraq, but maybe in many countries in the Middle East, although Syria has a different scenario before the conflict, of course, but it's it's that problem of, of uh, still not fully wanting to have mm -hmm. uh, uh, in, in, you know, in the highest spheres of the country, it's not fully wanting to have a multinational, multi-ethnic, multi-religious country. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and, and Anahid, you mentioned the Assyrians as the indigenous people because they mm -hmm. date back, what, yeah. 10,000 years or even longer? Yeah. Like as a... Years. This year mm -hmm. it was our 6,728 uh -huh. new year. Oh, well, yeah. congratulations. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Wow. And, and, and three weeks ago. 
you know, and this is such a painful problem in the Middle East with these ancient, ancient cultures that are so important to humanity at large mm-hmm. because of the wisdom of that tradition. I mean, 6,000 years, yeah. right, of, of social <laughs> oh, organization. Yes, yeah. I, unfortunately, I'm sorry for interruption. No, please, no. When I'm talking about ongoing genocide, we have a lot of uh, also cultural genocide yeah. is going yes. on yes, in yes, territory. Yes. As you know, so many like all those artifacts and like they were yeah. destroyed. Assyrians originally yeah. like they were destroyed. Like, yes. they were bulldozing the ancient yeah. City of Nimrud yeah. in 2015. Yeah, all that. So I was thinking of Palmyra as well. When well, I I heard that Palmyra, I just couldn't. I still can't think that I will never meet Palmyra. You know, I I it's terrible. It's gone, and we but cannot construct it. Yeah. all that old civilization which we used to have, unfortunately. But and, and yeah. there's also. The Western civilization, because those of us who are Christians, that, you know, I was having one day a conversation with a colleague of mine and talking about Iraq. And he said, oh, you know, something about Christianity being born in Europe. And I said, what, where, how come? <laughs> that, you mean the Vatican? <laughs> like, no, that's yeah. the, the Christianity is from the Middle East. I mean, yes. Abraham was born in Iraq, actually. Yeah. So I think part of our identity is it comes from the Middle East. So, and unfortunately, yeah. losing with Christians in Middle East, losing, I'm not speaking only about like uh, killing them, like vanishing, just disappearing mm-hmm. Christians in Middle East. This is like really like bigger disaster for whole world. Not yes, no, that's right. Yeah, locally, but also for whole world, because it's like changing all history we used to have. Right. And yeah. And this is a shared history. Do you know it's mm-hmm. not right? Like the groups became Christian, right? But mm-hmm. but it's a shared history of ancient peoples, right? That that have influenced really all regions of the globe, right? So Assyrians, Jews, Armenians, these are really old Yazidis, these are really old peoples, right? Mm-hmm. That um Yes, that that have just shared the wealth of their cultural influence with everyone in the world, right? Yes. If you think about like the Armenian diaspora was in China and in 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 yeah. India, yeah, thousands of years ago. It's really no, it's unbelievable. It's yeah. unbelievable. It's wonderful actually to oh, think that they gave yeah. the Middle East has given uh, so much. I think that yeah. the you know the colonization of 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 countries by Europe by European countries then sort of erased what the Middle East gave us, you know, algebra, you know, you think of even <laughs> yeah. mathematics, the, uh-huh. the study of the sky, so much comes from the Middle East. And so it's something that we have to continue to try to bring back to our, our part. It's part of our identity to bring back to the culture. So it's very sad that this is happening to, to all of the communities, to all of the communities. No, it's you terrible. Know, and, being an Assyrian, he always says, mm-hmm. you know, my people, they speak, they used they used to speak and they speak on the language of Jesus. Yeah. So, and you know, like only that one when you think about it. And today they are gone yeah. and they are all over the world without state, without like a small land which they used to have mm-hmm. in Iraq as an indigenous people. It's really, really like I mean, it's really painful. 
It's yeah. really painful. It's, it's painful. true. And there's, you know, not to get too mystic about it, but um, coming from a very new nation, right, that's based on settler colonialism and uh, the United States I'm talking mm-hmm. about, do you know, and that just sort of embraces this this newness, which is often called juvenile or adolescent, right? We're like an adolescent yeah. nation. To go to Iraq, I mean, always it was interesting to go to Europe, which is older, but still fairly mm-hmm. new in terms yeah. of the civilization there. And then Absolutely. to go to Iraq, oh my God. Irene, you too, right? Because you, you well, also yeah, are the settler colonial country, <laughs> right? colonial nation right. with very few indigenous people left. Right. Like, not, I mean, some countries of the Americas do have more indigenous population, fortunately, but but still, all of them are very new nation states. As the idea yeah. of a government of, of a nation state, the liberal nation state from the 17th, 18th century is very new for us. Right. So we're certainly, maybe not even adolescents in Latin America, we're just children. children. Yeah, I, I think children. that I think children is more appropriate, <laughs> so, especially for the U.S. <laughs> with our economic and social situation. But when one thinks of Iraq, that's why I got so sudden about Palmyra, right? Yeah. Or other other monuments when I saw the Pope also in this amazing old places ancient places I was like unbelievable this is where history was born for yeah. for us that you know for everybody actually for those who have European descent and I don't know some Christian identity or yeah. Jewish or Muslim that's where we were all, that's where we come from yeah that's so where we come it's from very, and it needs uh, to be it needs to be saved. Do you know? Yeah. I think because just the way people live, it's very, it's, there's a wisdom. You know, we spent a lot of time with Christian communities in Iraq. And I don't, you know, I'm not an anthropologist or whatever, but the, the way people live and care for one another and the way they see the world is really, really, it shows a depth of understanding of history. It shows a wisdom that can only happen over thousands of years. This is my feeling about ancient peoples. Do you know that we that we need to, to be an anthropologist for that? Right to, for that. I know, but right, that's true. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I just it, it's it was really touching. I have to say, and really, you know, I, there were many times where I thought, oh, if the rest of the world could just listen to what people say in Iraq, what Christians say what Yazidis are saying. They just have an approach to the world that is underrepresented, not heard, but so vital and important to coexistence. And, you know, I think that's an argument that we have to keep making, that these are vital and important cultures and peoples. Um, And that they're not, you know, we tend to like, and this is such a Western thing, we tend to equalize everything under a human rights, universalistic human rights matrix. And yeah, that's great, right? Like every every individual, you know, is irreplaceable and is endowed with, with, you know, inalienable rights. I think that's absolutely right. But that does not mean that we shouldn't judicially distinguish between new and old cultures cultures, right? And, and recognize what old cultures offer us um, as people of this earth, um, particularly now when we're facing extinction as a species, right? I think these old cultures can help us pave the way forward. And the the only words that we heard from Yazidis and, and, um, and Christians in Iraq were words of peace. That's what we heard, were words of peace and coexistence. Um, and, and I think you know, that's just a message the world needs to hear. And yet if we allow these groups to be uh, decimated and extinguished, we will lose forever, I think, something that may be the, the clue or the key to our, to our continued survival. 
Oh, Irena. Sorry, I'm sorry. I had muted my <laughs> my microphone for the noises. I'm so sorry. I wanted to say that I don't think this is at all a religious problem, right? When yeah. I was mentioning Sharia, I want to make that clear. It's nothing against the Muslims. I think mm -hmm. this is a very political problem. It's a problem of a fascist ideology. Mm -hmm. It's a problem of power. It's a problem of geopolitics. It's not a problem of religion. When one, one looks at... Uh, the history, one can see that, yeah, there were many conflicts, of course, but there were also times of, of, of uh, a coexistence, yeah. of a lot of coexistence, a lot of collaboration, solidarity, cooperation, cooperation amongst the different communities. And I think colonialism, power struggle, geopolitics play such an essential role in the conflict of the region. Um, so that's you know, that somehow this utopian thought is what we want to, yeah. you know, of bringing peace is what we want to do at the Iraq project, actually. We want to try to work with the communities and, and try to empower them in order to have a better future and survive the situation. Survive, that's what it's about. Survive, yeah. Anahi, what do you think about that, like opportunities for survival or reconstruction mm -hmm. in Iraq, in Syria, you know, in Artsakh, around this region? Uh, you know, um, I, I think it's different with Artsakh and yeah, because yeah. with, I mean, here it's totally different problem, mm. but in other parts, like in Syria, in Iraq, already, like, as I said, we used to have a huge community and mostly like huge percentage of when they left. So I don't... If it's very easy for people who sit, I mean, again, I'm talking about Assyrians who are there, they have a very comfortable life in United mm -hmm. States, mm -hmm. in Europe, in Australia. They say, oh, you know what, why they are living? It's our land. No, it's very hard. It's very hard to save the land. Yes. You know, people. I always say people, they born just once. And when yep. they're born, mm. they have children, they have a family. They want to give them a good life. They don't want to, like, their children will be around war, yeah. around farming, and it, it's, 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 it's very hard. So I cannot blame them. I cannot tell them, oh, you know what? It's my land, and you yeah. are my people. Why did you leave it? Because yeah. they can tell, why don't you come to live here? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I can tell about Armenians, like we were speaking about Armenian diaspora. Yes, Armenians, they are people, we have a 3 million population inside the country, but we have more than 7 million globally. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and when war, war started in Karabakh, I appreciate many, many Armenians, they were helping with humanitarian help, with money and things like that. But, you know, it's not enough. Mm. If half of those Armenians who live right now in the United States illegally, they would live in our country and they would go to protect our country and Artsakh, maybe we, 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 we wouldn't have a situation which we are mm. having. Mm. So... I think it's also about that. So it depends like how you as a person, as an individual, how you, what's, what's your, what's your consideration toward the issue? 
Yeah. Again, I cannot, I cannot, I, I mean, I don't want and I cannot tell anything bad about the people of Syria and Iraq who are leaving those territories because they want to have a good life. Exactly. Apparently, Armenians, they can tell the same thing. But for a change in Armenia, we have a country. And, you know, yeah. sometimes when I speak about the Karabakh war, and I'm sorry, I'm just going from subject to subject, just my thoughts. That's no, great. No, please. Yeah, then when when we were speaking about the Karabakh war, I always I mean and this broken situation which we are having for the past several months, I always tell I say, you know, yeah, Anahit, like when you were born, you know you are half Assyrian, half Armenian. Being an Assyrian, I know I don't have a country. And mm-hmm. even you go through history books, you you read, and even in school when they were teaching mm-hmm. us the history of Assyria, I remember I was so proud when history teacher was speaking about Assyria, about Nineveh, mm-hmm. about their culture, about their civilization. Very proud. And but you know one thing when you were born and you know you don't have a country. Yes, it's very it's mm-hmm. hurting, painful. Yeah. But yeah. second thing on the other way. On the other hand, Armenia, we have a country and Mm -hmm. we have to save it. We cannot just give it to Turks or Azerbaijan, Mm -hmm. Russians, no one, because it's very hard. It's very hard. I mean, for me, it's very hard. I mean, those territories of Artsakh, 75% of the territory which we gave it to Azerbaijan, Mm -hmm. you know how hard it is from 2009 at least three four times per year me and my colleagues we were visiting those military bases and i mean i knew every tree every Mm -hmm. stone of that part and today it's kind of very hard when you know you cannot go there anymore and it doesn't belong to you so as I said, one thing when you were born and you don't have it and it's it's in your memory, it's yes. in your heart, it's in your soul. And one thing if you used to have it, like last year, this time we were there yeah. and now it, we cannot go there you cannot go. it doesn't belong to us anymore. So... I'm sorry mm-hmm. for the last no, part. I, no, that is like, no, 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 I think, and that's, yeah, I have actually a follow-up question. I really don't want to take too much of your time. We've had you now for, for quite a long time, but, um, and then we have other questions for you, but we're going to bring you on again if you are kind enough to come <laughs> record with sure. us. But the one follow-up question I have to that is, is sort of, do you have thoughts, Anahid, about... You know, I mean, it's hard for me to think of a way forward towards peace uh, between Armenia and Azerbaijan, given that what I consider to be the truly genocidal um, ideology of the current Azerbaijani state, supported by an ongoing genocidal ideology um, within the Turkish state. So that is a really important caveat to what I'm going to ask. But, you know, there are... Azerbaijan has made, you know, a political issue of uh, Azeri displaced peoples from the first Artsakh war, right? 
So they've made it a big political issue, and they've tried to take the Kojali massacre and turn it into a genocide. And and while I have a very capacious view of what genocide is, I've looked into Kajali, and I actually this is something we can talk about on a on an, a specific podcast. But I do not see indicators of genocide in the Kajali massacre, no matter what um, which version, right? one looks at, including sometimes the version one hears that it wasn't Armenians who committed it at all, right? So there's a lot of lack of clarity. But but there are displaced people, but apart from that kind of political level, there are displaced Azeris, right? Um, and I'd like you to speak a little bit to that. Like, how? what's the way forward in terms of rec- uh, reconciling land claims by Azeris who actually lived right in Nagorno-Karabakh from, you know, 1921 when it was given to Azerbaijan by Stalin um, up to 1994. You know, Elisa, uh, this is the issue, like we can speak like maybe for another broadcast of yours. Okay, yeah, let's do it. Yeah, we would love yeah, to. Because yeah, because it's really very complicated issue. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. recently I was having uh, another um, Zoom call uh, with one of the organizations from Germany. Mm-hmm. Actually, this issue took like three and a half hours just to speak about <laughs> yeah. like, Okay, you know, we don't have that much time. <laughs> yeah, I was taking this string like, you know, and you didn't yeah. know, like you are just going deep and deep yeah. and, you know, there are so many things to tell. But yeah. again, I'm going to be very short. Regarding Hojalu massacres, Hojalu massacres, they were organized by Azerbaijani government, by their own government to their own people. Mm-hmm. And there are so many proofs to it. Mm-hmm. And they're just reversing to put the guilt on Armenians. Yeah. No. Armenians that time, they were helping Azerbaijani. They even opened a corridor there so Azerbaijani people can I've leave. Yeah, but yes, they, yes. they killed their own people hmm. just to prove world that this was a genocide committed by the Armenians. So this is wrong. And I mean, there is no even question there to Great. discuss. Mm-hmm. But regarding the reconciliation, you know, so many people, they are asking me this question. Yes. You can reconcile with people, with civilized people, not with Turkey. With Turkey, we may have an issue. Denial policy of the Republic yeah. of Turkey. If Turkey recognized the Armenian genocide after compensation and after all that financial and, mm. you know, I mean, everything, what they have to also land, which they took it from us. After all that, maybe we can speak about the reconciliation with Turkey and to open the borders. Not not before they can recognize the Armenian genocide. This mm-hmm. is with Turkey. Azerbaijan. I'm just going to bring you a small example. Right now in Nagorno-Karabakh, they're living with two people right now, Azerbaijani and Armenians, and between them, they are Russian peacekeepers. After all these times, even now, they cannot live together because, you know, this attitude they have towards the Armenians Mm -hmm. and maybe this anger which comes from the first Karabakh war, Mm. maybe, it doesn't give this reconciliation. You know, it has to be, unfortunately, geographically, it's such a wrong place. So you cannot do anything here. And Mm -hmm. right now, by the way, Armenian government uh, recently, I was having a couple days ago, I was having interview in Armenian TV. 
and I'm sure Armenian government didn't like what I said. But unfortunately, the um, denial policy of Turkey all these years and nowadays Armenian government policy, which they are doing toward this issue, it's like common hmm. because Armenian government says the same thing. We have too many parliamentarians, also including prime minister, which they are thinking already there is with the intent, oh, we have to reconcile. Yes, we can reconcile. We will never forget this genocide. We can reconcile, but after it will be recognized as a genocide. Yeah. And with Azerbaijan, no, we still have an issue with Azerbaijan because historically this is our land. Just because of the policy which was Stalin was doing, I mean, I cannot blame Stalin either because for him it was a Soviet Union and he was thinking, what's the difference? It's under the Azerbaijan <laughs> or it's a one country. This is how he was thinking. But that time, you know, in 1988, when this Karabakh conflict started, why it started? Because people of Artsakh, people of Nagorno-Karabakh, they were feeling uncomfortable under Azerbaijan yeah. rule. Yeah, that's so important. Yeah, out of nowhere, oh, we want to be with Armenia. No, exactly. it started because they were not feeling comfortable. They were feeling oppressed. They were just putting pressure on them in every issue. So that's why it started. So, and thank God, like the first Karabakh, or every time when I'm going through these papers, and reading about the first Karabakh war, I mean, all these years was feeling so good when I was reading like total victory of Armenian army. And now you are reading this capitulation. And you know, Elisa, I'm just going to make this last statement. I think during the first Karabakh war, just because Azerbaijan lost everything mm -hmm. and it was a total victory of Armenian army, that's why starting they started from zero. They start to build themselves from zero to win their territories back. Mm -hmm. I think that's why they had this victory. Yes, mm -hmm. it took year, years. It took a lot of years, like more than 20 years. But it's just because they started from zero. Apparently, mm -hmm. they started to build themselves stronger and stronger. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, we are going to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. And I say, I want when I'm going to die at the age of 80, 90, I don't know. <laughs> if we have a territory in Armenia, in Artsakh, before September 27, before the Artsakh war, I can sell that I lived very good life with the goal mm -hmm. accomplished. Oh, that's so nice. lovely, Anahit. Thank you so much. And, and we hear you on this issue of there cannot be reconciliation without justice and recognition and accountability. I think that's one of the principles of genocide prevention. Absolutely. And the reason is that without, without accountability, justice and rec recognition, uh, the violence continues against the people who were victimized, yeah. against the, the survivors. Yeah, the wounds are, the still, wounds open. are still open. So it's and, impossible. Yeah. How will you heal if you have? If you, I mean, I always say this to to my students: is on a one-on-one -on -one, right situation when a friend hurts you, you expect an apology, right? Yeah. And and that apology is what would return that friendship again or whatever relationship you have. And this is the same case if yeah. you've been harmed. By, by a country, by a scenario, like not the same as Turkey, right? It, it was the Ottomans, the Young Turks, but still you are expecting uh, something, something that 
that shows that they regret at least or that they at least in a way uh, will bring some justice to the victims. If not, I think reconciliation is unfortunately impossible. It's impossible and it's too much to ask of people. Yep. It's not It's exactly. not fair to ask. It's not fair. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Anahid. We cannot thank you enough and we're looking forward to having you back, <laughs> taking more of your time. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you good one i don't know at least i tried my best and oh, it was fantastic you are it fantastic was it was great we can't thank, thank you, so you much. enough mm-hmm. and thank to you. our listeners i'm sure you got as much out of this as we did this was really clarifying um and if you have you listeners out there if you have questions that you'd like to ask anahit uh, on the next podcast, when we have her back, whenever she has time, please, uh, on Patreon, you can submit your questions. So please send us a message with your questions there. Um, and I guess we're going to sign off now, right? From Argentina, Armenia, and the United States, we say have a wonderful week, and we will see you in a week's time. And bye-bye. 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 bye-bye.